Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Dr. Vince Cataruccia. So I'm going to read Dr. Vince's intro because it's got a lot of big, long words in it. He's got too many degrees for me. So I'm going to read it, and then uh, he can correct me where I screw up. So he is a musculoskeletal rehab expert. He's known for uncovering hidden sources of physical pain and producing lasting solutions for his patients without medication or surgery, which I believe is going to be a key part of today's talk. His natural approach to solving pain is guided by his unique combination of professional credentials, including a Ph.D. in behavioral health, a master's of science in kinesiotherapy, and a master's of science in human performance. Dr. Vince is also a licensed neuromuscular therapist. So that is a lot of words and titles. And with that said, let me welcome you to the show. I appreciate you coming up. And uh, yeah, let's dive into your life, man. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Jason. Absolutely, my friend. I'm, uh, I'm super curious to learn a little bit about you. Now, I got in contact with you through my wife who went to a session with you and had fantastic results. And we can talk a little bit about that. I know she won't mind. But um, before we jump into some of what you're doing right now in business, take us back a little bit and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What was up? uh, What was uh, early life like for a young Vince? Yeah, well, early life for young Vince was actually very good. I I was the all-American kid, grew up in Brookfield, Wisconsin, a loving family, connected family. A uh, very Italian American family, so lots of amazing food. Nona lived upstairs, so I have a very rich cultural history. I understand my upbringing, my my heritage, <clears throat> which there's a lot of kids nowadays that can't say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of the day, I'm not a person that's coming to you with this incredible story of fortitude and grit. I, <laughs> I grew up with a family that had BMWs and and convertible Mustangs. But uh, at the end of the day, my life journey got a little difficult when I left the house, when I decided that, you know, I was going to be my own man and start business. So I started my own business early my sophomore year in college. Okay. That is early. Yeah. Yeah. I I was a, a guy, a server that worked in a country club, a tennis country club, and I had a real passion for bodybuilding, uh, fitness generally, Mm -hmm. and I was a new fledgling exercise physiology student in school, and I thought, you know, I could do this personal training thing the same way the country club did their tennis thing, Mm -hmm. offer it to real high-end, upper kind of niche people, the top five percenters financially. And I tried to do that. I I began that in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Now, Green Bay, Wisconsin, if you don't know, their whole mantra has to do with beer, Green Bay Packers, and cheese. I was going to say, you have to have the Packers in that list, right? Yes, yes, definitely. Beer came first. Notice, (laughs) beer was first. Um, So I was up against... Uh, a, a difficult task in starting a personal training business and reaching out to the upper 5%. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what I was thinking, you know, but I, it became successful. I started this amazing business. Um, it hadn't been done. 
went really super well for a bunch of years. And then I brought a partner on and, and now that I'm 30 years into business, they always kind of say, look, you know, you got to be careful with partners. And my, my goal and my vision started to go a different direction. And, uh, long story short, that business ended and it, it was my first real taste of, oh no, what do you do starting at zero again? Right. And having to reclimb the ladder, having to figure out how to persevere. So these words, right, that, mm-hmm. you, that I'm using, perseverance and fortitude. To a young person, unless you go through the stuff, the hard stuff, those words are just words. They Absolutely. don't mean a lot. So. Now, there's a saying in business that a partnership is the worst type of business to own. <laughs> Has, was that your experience at the time? <clears throat> so I'm trying to be super politically correct. Yes, <laughs> you, were, you were right on the money. If you don't have to bring on a financial partner of any sort, don't do it. Stay the course, you know. Was that your reason in partnering up with uh, yes. another individual? Yeah. yeah. I was the technical side. I just didn't have the money to grow the business. Mm-hmm. And what I should have done in hindsight is hang out and wait and, and earn the money. Mm-hmm. Put the money away and then build the business, right? No, that's not how it works in youth. It's all about... I want it now. Yeah, patience and youth don't necessarily go hand in hand. No, they don't. You're exactly right. So that was a, what do they say? Fail fast, succeed soon, right? So I can honestly say I've been to zero a couple times in my life. I've had a really large personal training business, 34 trainers and massage therapists and making lots of money and here I am now as a, a business of one. And at the end of the day, I make more money as a business of one than I did as a business of 30 or 40. Really? Because the overhead was just absolutely astronomical. Sure. All of those bodies, all the insurance, all the taxes, all the stuff that goes along with running a business. I think there's a sweet spot, but in a service business, it's very difficult. Yeah, for sure. When you uh, when you started that first business, you said you were in college. Yes. Right. So very young guy at this point, I'm assuming. And at the at that point in time, when you were rocking and rolling, you know, having a good time with it, and then all of a sudden you pivot and you, this partnership, uh, it, I'm, I'm assuming, is dissolved at this point. You know, what did that do to you as an individual? What lesson did you learn from that experience? I think what it did is it taught me really quickly that. Um, how, how do you want to say it's it's all about control like I was a guy that was trying to over control or oversteer the whole process really try to drive it and compel it to move at speeds that were faster than what it should have been growing at sure had I been patient had I been a little bit more calculated and just kind of waited for things to kind of naturally evolve as they do, now I know they do, um, I think that it would have become and remained successful. Um, But because of the fact that I didn't understand the natural maturation of business, Mm -hmm. I was pulling in wrong employees, I was, it definitely made a mistake 
partnering with the person that I partnered with because there were two different energetic flows happening and one going in a completely different direction than mine. And that tires you out, it burns you out. You can only sustain that for so long. Right, right. So was that uh, dissolution, was it amicable at the end or did you guys have to, to, to duke it out? No, that was, <clears throat> so because that was, uh, the dissolution was the technical side leaving the financial side, I had to basically kind of leave with my tail between my legs because I didn't have the finances to really protect myself or sure. go. So that's where you grab what you can and you walk away and you start over is the best way to say it. Mm-hmm. You, you kind of lick your wounds, pick yourself up and get after it again. Yeah, so I'm always interested when these when these stories come up about someone lost something, a, a friend, a, a partner, a business, you know, something significant in their life. And then there's that period where you sort of have to process that. Oh, yeah. And you have to think about, you know, what you liked about what you did, what you enjoyed and what you didn't. And I'm curious, you know, obviously you went on to build another business, but I'm curious how much time did you take between the ending of the first business and going into your next venture? Right, right. Well, it's interesting because I I never really do things easy. (laughs) (coughs) So I left that business and within months I found myself in Chicago, Illinois, uh, pursuing a PhD at Northwestern. And um, long story short there, the loan that I had tried to take out, went to subcommittee, and they didn't give me my loan for the doctorate program. So I ended up in a place called LaGrange Park, Illinois. Very, very expensive space and place to be renting uh, an apartment. And I didn't have a job and I didn't have school. So I ended up as a personal trainer, Mm. which is so ironic. And I was working for the gentleman that eventually is the founder of Free Motion, or was back then. Um, but I was making $9 an hour wearing a pair of light blue tights and a red t-shirt. And <laughs> if you know what I look like, I wouldn't look good in a pair of light blue tights. Um, <clears throat> but I had to dig myself out. So it was two years worth of really, uh, making the wrong move after that business folded. I made one more poor decision and it left me in a, place and space that didn't allow me to mourn or figure out what I had done right or wrong in the first business. Mm. What I can tell you is that it distracted me and it just kept my nose to the grinder. Like I went from working 16 hours a day in the business to now working 16 hours a day to try to get myself out of Illinois. And so two years after that, a lot of growth, right? Because you have to realize that humility is the foundation for all of us. Now, I went from a business that was making almost $3 million a year to working as a personal trainer for $9 an hour and not having any time to figure out why or what was good or bad about that experience with my business after 10 years. I didn't actually get to start sifting through those thoughts for two years. So getting after that, what I had to first do is forgive. Mm. 
And what I can tell you is that there's no way I would be sitting here with you in a successful position if I didn't learn how to forgive. If I would have kept the animosity and the anger within me that I had for my partner, there's no way you can move on and do anything good for anybody else. You might think so, but it took me a little while to really figure out what, and and this is a special word to me, what the linchpin was for my lack of personal growth in those two years. So there's probably a ton to unpack in that. And there's a few key things that stood out in my mind as I'm listening to your story. One of which is this idea that the universe gives us the same situation over and over Over until we learn the lesson. And so when you say the word linchpin and you say the word forgiveness, I'm wondering what that process looked like for you. Was it a conscious process or was it something that just, you know, sort of materialized in your head and, and you figured it out on the fly? <clears throat> it's it, the way I look at it. If I can use this analogy, it's a little bit like being down on the ground and someone kicking you mm. and you're going through these thoughts. I have to get up off the ground. I'm going to die. If I don't get up off the ground, you have to figure out how to get your feet underneath you. You mm-hmm. have to figure that out. It doesn't happen right away. You're taking these hits, right? And every time you take a hit, it's harder to get your feet underneath. So, it was super conscious for me. It was a lot of really intense soul searching. Like, what am I missing? I, I, I tend to function on a pretty high level cognitively, right? Like, I get the mind-body connection and I understand. It's funny how it works really well f- when I'm talking to somebody else, though, right? And not as so well if I'm applying it to self. I'm a slow learner. But what I figured out, like I said, was... One day, you can call it epiphany or whatever you want to call it to glorify it, but it was just like, okay, why was this so difficult? Like, you learn, I grew up Catholic, right? You learn these words, you think. You actually don't learn them until you apply the knowledge. Mm -hmm. So through this tough time and the repetition of catastrophe, Mm -hmm. I got my first dose an understanding of forgiveness and the power in it. it. It's not, it's not about you. It's about that other person. You can't carry that person with you every day. You got yourself to deal with. I actually call it a little red wagon because I, 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 I bring this stuff up with my clientele that the people that are hurting, you have pain. <clears throat> well, that pain is multifactorial. And a lot of times this thing we're talking about, this hurt, this emotional hurt that you go through in life, we tend to, as humans, take that hurt and put it in this little red wagon behind us. And we're dragging this little red wagon behind us for our entire life. How full that red wagon is, is up to you. Mm. Forgiveness is actually the key to emptying your little red wagon. Now, will it ever be totally empty? Probably not. Because we're going to continue to make stupid mistakes as humans. Mm -hmm. 
But if you don't learn that word forgiveness, that little red wagon gets pretty freaking heavy. And it can weigh you down. And it can impede your performance in, in all of your days to come. Or it could get in, in the way of you healing from whatever physically manifested pain you have. So that's a powerful thing. And it's something that I learned early in my life, in my late 20s, early 30s. Mm-hmm. I love that analogy. The, uh, the little red wagon takes me back to the radio flyer days. I wonder if those things are still around. Exactly, today. yes. It's such a visceral photo, you know, carrying it's your... real thing. Yeah, carrying your shit around, right? Like, yes. why, why bother? Um, you know, I, I, I see this in the gym. Obviously, you're, uh, you know, on a much higher level than I am. But when I'm dealing with people in the gym, you know, they have the same psychological hangups and they're viewing their performance today through a lens that happened years ago or a lens that their dad gave them or that their mom gave them or that their friend gave them. And I, you know, I use the analogy, you, you know, if you're going to go to second base, you can't take first base with you. You know, you can't still second standing <laughs> on first base, right? You got to let go of all that crap. And Absolutely. And the power of that, I think, uh, you know, what you're alluding to and what I was hearing you say is just this massive amount of freedom oh. that comes with this ability to just choose a different way of moving, a different way of seeing the world. It's an incredibly different level mm. of functioning in life. And so some experts especially in today's day and age, and you'll start to see more of it in the fitness realm, emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. is what we kind of coin it, right? Is how in touch are we with ourselves Mm -hmm. in our inner peace, our ability to um, ebb and flow with different energies in our day. It's all about vibration. It's all about functioning on high vibration those low vibrations, those lower vibrating people are the ones that you want to try to minimize the dose of. But at the end of the day, I believe vibration has to do with your ability to alchemize the, the bad things, the things that are negative. And I don't mean to sound overly spiritual, but forgiveness, humility, these are giant words, especially in today's day and age, right? Mm-hmm. I think I got the Paulo Coelho uh, reference there, but if you would just unpack that word, alchemize, what do you mean by that? So alchemize, it's at first the realization that you have this negative thought, negative personal experience. What are you going to do about it? You have a choice. You can literally choose to let that in and it can be a part, become part of the fabric of your soul this negativity it can change how you vibrate it can change how you think how you feel how you act or you can stop this negativity this negative energy before it enters your conscious or subconscious and you can change it you can take it and spin it in a direction that's positive, in a direction that works for you or for somebody else. Maybe it's that person speaking negatively to you. You have a choice to accept those words or you have a choice to ask them to reframe it. Mm -hmm. Hey, wait a second. Can you say that a different way? Because the way you just said it doesn't make me feel good. 
you're alchemizing. You're you're basically changing how that the water you drink makes you feel. Mm. How it vibrates, how it how it kind of functions within you. Mm. I am super intrigued by that. I am a very direct person and Christine will tell you and the people that I work with will tell you that I just like, hey, this is what I'm thinking. And a lot of times people, especially in today's world, are so sensitive to every little thing that I get tone policed a lot. You know, Absolutely. I don't like the way that you said that. I don't, you know, <clears throat> you, you put me off. You, you, you did this, you did that, you did this, you did that. And I'm constantly trying to tell people, or not trying, I'm constantly telling people that you can perceive my words any way you want, right? right? You have that power. And if you take your story away from my words, then all you're left with is just the words. What if you wrote a story around my words that was empowering to you, you know? Yes. And so I'm, I, yes. I, I love this debate. So I'm, I'm curious where you stand on the how much of the tone policing is acceptable versus how much of the responsibility of writing the story about the words someone says falls onto me personally. Yeah, so I'm going to start right off the bat with what I was thinking as you were speaking. Mm. You have to think, or the people that are the tone police, or or we we as people need to realize that the person you're speaking to is your mirror. The reaction that you get from that person is something that you can actually control. So if you're feeling a certain way when you say something to somebody, let's say you have a little bit of disgust in your mind and you're coming at that person with some words and you say it to them and they react back at you with a tone of disgust. There's your mirror. Mm. You kind of created your own shitstorm. I see. How I know this is I'm working really closely with an energetic healer. My wife and I, she's from New York. Mm -hmm. I'm from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Right. New York sometimes is a little bit more aggressive than <laughs> Green Bay, Wisconsin. Just a little bit. Just a little. <laughs> um, so once in a while, how Jennifer, my wife, beautiful wife, love her to death. I'm learning how to co-manage this mirroring because when she comes at me with kind of how her day is affecting her. Like, I have no clue what's going on in her mind. Mm -hmm. Sometimes she comes at me like a tigress. Mm -hmm. And I'm just sitting idle. I think I'm minding my own business and I'm, I'm being good. She'll come at me and with a tone that's pretty aggressive. And it, it, my reaction is at her level. Mm. She asked for that. She, that's the mirror. I gave her what she was asking for. Sure. So I think the you, what I'm going to do is alchemize what you kind of said. You have the tone police. But I think there might be a way of getting rid of tone police. Mm. If you realize that the reaction or the response that you're hoping for might be completely based on how you're communicating mm -hmm. and delivering the energy that you're exuding. And so that's kind of uh, an interesting 
quest that I'm on also because I'm a do hard things guy. I'm a, I'm a black and white guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jennifer has an infected toe and I just say, it's a toe, get, get over it, right. put it in your shoe. Let's go. <laughs> right. It doesn't go over so well. So that's the guy I am. I'm a survivalist. I like to do expedition races. I, I don't have time for week. I don't have time for, uh, f- sometimes I don't have time for fluffy conversation. Sure. <laughs> and to me that, that those two things are almost antithetical in a way, there. you know, because I think you're, I, th- I think I agree with you from the standpoint of the intent behind the words is what matters. If my intent is to sort of cause you to match my energetic frustration, then I've messed up. But if I'm just giving you, like you said, the black and white of how I see the situation with the intent that we can together work to create a better situation. Yes. And then I'm met with the tone policing. I feel like at that point, you know, it's come on, guys, like we're adults here and. You know, words are words, separate the story from the words and let's see if we can find common ground or like in, you know, to use the energetic sense, yeah. common energy and move forward. But I find that uh, especially younger people in today's world seem to have a real issue with hearing a person's truth or a person's objective opinion about a performance or a job performance. <laughs> and I think the, I think the, I think the real challenge for me has been that if I come at you even with like soft words or hard words, whatever, whatever they are, the problem with the tone policing that as I see it is that you can always use that as an excuse not to hear the words. Absolutely. You know? And so for me, you know, being the monkey that I am, I'm trying to find that line, you know, yeah. where's, yeah. which, which, where, how far across, how, you know, what do I need to do? And I, you, you, I think you succinctly summed it up and you reminded me of a friend of mine when you said, you know, uh, the energy that you're putting forth is the energy you're going to get mirrored back. And I remember a conversation I had with a, a friend of mine named Michael who owns another facility in town called Optimize. And he was telling me, he's like, listen, man, I don't even send an email, right? If I have the wrong energy behind the typewriter, you know, behind the keyboard, because that energy is going to get picked up on the other side. So for me, it's like, where's that line between what I'm feeling, what I've processed and what I want to communicate versus what someone else has the ability to perceive that I'm communicating. And I love the way you framed it earlier, because you can always say, like, anytime you feel that threat, that tone policing threat, right? You can always say, you know what? That hit me the wrong way. I love that because you, you take your power back in that instant you know what, listen, man, that hit me the wrong way and I don't want to fight. So let's, you know, let's get down to the root of it. Yeah. Let's level this. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I do that a lot with especially clientele. Mm -hmm. I deal with a relatively affluent clientele here in Scottsdale that like to be in control. Mm -hmm. And once in a while I have to push back away from the table on my little rolly chair while they're (laughs) sitting in my comfortable lounge chair with their legs crossed and their arm up on the back and they're postured like, okay, I'm interviewing you. What they don't realize is I'm interviewing them. Mm-hmm. And once in a while they'll say something that is a little disconcerting or a little minimizing. Like this isn't a pissing match. Mm-hmm. 
And it shouldn't be. This is a really communicative environment, and it's all about us just having conversation. This shouldn't go to any level. It shouldn't even be gauged on a level. This is just gentle conversation. So once in a while, I have to say, hold on, reset. You're elevating. There's no reason for it. I'm, we're good here. I'm not threatening you. You shouldn't be threatening me. I think that that's just honest confrontation, and that's what we have to be really good at. Yeah, right? Isn't that how we get, I mean, in your experience in dealing with client after client after client, and then I'm sure in personal lives as well, right? But isn't that how we get to that depth of relationship? Absolutely. It's about that. That's the only way to get to the depth is to call up, I have to be careful, it's not politically correct, call a square a square. <laughs> uh, it is what it is, and I'm not afraid to say it. I think that we've become a bit soft, and we're always worried about stepping on toes or about how someone's going to feel. Or I think it's just you have to come from a really healthy, honest, trustworthy level in your conversation mm-hmm. or the way you speak. Mm-hmm. No agendas. Right, right. Yeah. So how much of that uh, posturing, you know, really uh, to me, that's how I interpret it. You know, a client is challenging you and then you're pushing back and they're pushing back, what have you. And as a professional, you know, your job is to get to root cause, you know, what's root cause, not only of, you know, the reason that you're here, but of this confrontation itself, you know, what, what is root cause for the attitude? What is root cause for your skepticism? And it seems like there's so much garbage in the marketplace that you almost have to expect people to come through the door and have some skepticism and want to push and challenge, Yes. you know? So as a professional, when you're sitting across from someone who's doing that, do you perceive that as a test or do you perceive it as something that, you know, you're using to eliminate that client? Like I'm, I'm gauging this person and if they don't hold up, they're out of here versus, you know, they're, they're trying me, they're testing me to see you know, if I'm really worth their time or their energy or their money? That's a super awesome question. It's actually part of my evaluation. Mm. Here's the deal. If a person's coming to me, that means that they've already kind of failed in the big medical system. Like they have tried physical therapy. They've tried physiotherapy. They've tried pain management. They've tried a surgery. They're just not doing well, right? If we have a confrontation like that in the evaluation, that tells me something about why the person is still hurting. Mm -hmm. There's a component, a factor on an emotional level that's keeping this person stressed. Uh, If I can use kind of a caricature, uh, a vision, a visual, it would be of that person gritting their teeth, you know, like not their fists are clenched and they're gritting their teeth and that's the way they begin their day. Like you go to that person and everything is a bit of a fight. Everything is a bit of an argument. Mm -hmm. Everything has to have a real justified reason to exist. Mm -hmm. Well, right there, a person is going to maintain pain Mm -hmm. because they're functioning at at a certain body electrical level their amps are so high that that spinal cord can only handle so many amps. So it's spilling over into the muscle system. That's your buffer. 
your muscles are the buffer for the electrical system. So if a person's functioning at a level where they need to argue all the time or they need to find some mm, negative point in a conversation, they always need to search for something, well, right there, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the amount of energy you're expending just to have a simple conversation. Right, right. Because then we're going to talk about how much energy you're expending to get through your whole day and why maybe your relationship at home isn't so good and why maybe your kids are off the friggin' wall, all adding to your experience with pain. Mm-hmm. So that's an awesome part or a component of an evaluation is just this simple conversation. That's amazing. I love, and that's the first, uh, the first step in, in bringing someone through your door and agreeing to take them on in the first place. And, you know, listening to you unpack or talk a little bit about the energy that a person brings to a room versus the energy within the body and how that impacts the musculoskeletal system. And then also the mentality, you know, a lot of people listen to that and they, they immediately go to, Oh, this, this guy's woo woo. This guy's <laughs> way out there in left field. You know, he's next thing he's going to be throwing tarot cards on the table kind of a thing. Right. How do you overcome those sorts of woo woo objections or, or do you ever have, have to deal with that in, in your practice? Is it, is it something that you can talk scientifically about or sure. is it always just coming down to, feeling and and this and that and the other thing these sort of esoteric non-tangibles yeah you know in today's day and age those non-tangibles those woo-woo are becoming a little bit more shabby chic yeah right thank goodness because years ago it was something that yeah definitely we wouldn't talk about we just do we just kind of psychoanalyze the client sitting before you and be like, okay, this is going to be a long road. (laughs) We got to get there. But now definitely, uh, again, my doctorate is in behavior and I did that on purpose because I needed to have this dovetail with the physical medicine side. There is no separation between the bio and the psycho, right? The biopsychosocial system of medicine is the one that works. Unfortunately for us in the U.S., we're still kind of really captivated by the biomedical system, which thinks that the brain somehow is disconnected from the rest of the being. But let's get back to it. I, I would tell you that the conversation with the client about energy and about how they feel and about how they act and about how they speak is a real thing. And the people that I get to work with, because they're kind of at the end of the road or they're facing a surgery that they don't want to face, these conversations are welcome. Because let me say this, my argument is what you're doing isn't working. You have to be open to other ideas. The definition of insanity is to have another injection, is to go through another eight weeks of physical therapy, is to go to a different doctor that's going to look at the old doctor's notes. Mm -hmm. So you have to be open to conversations that might be a little edgy, that might be a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, in, in 2020, 2021, I'm very 
pointed and very open with this type of conversation with my clients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's been well received. Really has been. Fantastic. One of the things that you mentioned just now, you, you talked about the mind body connection, not in those words, but when someone is presenting, you know, a specific case, um, you know, um, maybe they have a, uh, maybe they have sciatic pain, you know, or like yes. in my wife's case, they have an arm that goes numb when she's sleeping, right? So her shoulders are so tight kind of a thing. You know, when you look at that mind-body connection and you start, you know, taking the whole of the individual right. into sort of, I guess you'd say, when you start framing it as a, as a whole uh, photo rather than a whole picture, rather than just separating the physical from the mental, you know, what evidence is there or what scientific sort of backing can we refer back to when we tell someone, you know what, this has a lot to do with the, the way that you're thinking about this or the way that you're carrying yourself or the way that you see yourself uh, versus, yeah, I get that you have pain. Yeah, I get that you're in pain, right? I, I see that you're presenting with pain. I, I believe that it's real, you know, but how much of it is the way they're thinking about it? And is there a, like a specific use case where you can sort of open someone's eyes to the fact that the way they're thinking about it is probably making it worse. Absolutely. Now, do I have to have this conversation with everybody? No. I do have those people that are super analytic and they want to know why and they ask the questions, which is awesome because it keeps my knife sharp. I mean, yes, here's the simple way of explaining this. If I took... Well, I'm not going to be so grotesque. I'm just going to take a small stick and I'm going to smack you right in the knee with it. What's the first posture you're going to assume? Mm. The fetal posture. Mm -hmm. If I smack you in the elbow, what's the first thing you do? The fetal posture. Well, the fetal posture is how you came into this world. You spent a lot of time and energy to get out of that posture. So when a person is having pain and it's chronic, in other words, it's kind of onset, it's crept in, there's no real rhyme or reason, it's just happening, that fetal position creeps in also. You start to sleep more in a fetal position because you hurt. You sit in a fetal position because you hurt you start to become depressed because you can't do the things you love to do because you can't play with your kids. You can't play pickleball. You can't do whatever it is that brings you joy. So now you become depressed. And what's the posture of depression? The fetal position. It's flexion posture. In a performance world, flexion is a decelerated mechanic. Injuries occur in deceleration. They rarely occur in acceleration. Acceleration is an extended posture. So a healthy posture is an extended posture. A joyful posture is chest up, head up, extended posture. So we have these conversations with that client that doesn't believe that there's a connection between the mind and the body. And it's a realization that hits home. Mm. Because then we can start to talk about, well, let me see your picture before you had this pain. Mm. And let me see your picture today. 
The only difference between these two moments is this pain, right? Nothing else. It's just the pain. The postures are completely different. You're assuming that fetal position. When we become 80 years old, 90 years old, what's our position? Closer to fetal. You come in, how you go out. <laughs> and our goal in longevity and rejuvenation is to maintain erect posture as long as humanly possible. Right. And if we don't do something and understand postures and, and the power and observation of that posture, it's hard to understand how to help a person become well or stay well. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you brought up the idea of posture because at the end of the day, when you're looking at sort of the personal development world, you know, you see the way that you think, you know, informs your emotions, informs your actions, informs how you present yourself to the world. And if you're thinking negatively, you can easily walk around, like you said, in that sort of downtrodden, almost fetal position, right? But then from what I'm understanding, it also works in reverse. So if I see myself in that sort of bent over position, if I hold myself erect, you know, open body, you know, head up, chest out, like you were saying, then that I can also impact the way that I'm thinking about myself. Has that been true in your Absolutely. experience? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you go through any amazing coaching training or you go through speakers training and you go through etiquette school and all these things. I mean, it's all about posture and it's all about upright posture. And you can go back to the day, you know, my parents, I'm almost 50. My parents would talk about how their parents would smack him in the back of the head if they weren't sitting up straight. Stop slouching. But there is science behind this. Mm -hmm. If you're slouching, if your posture is in a flexed or fetal position, you can't breathe. You can't take in oxygen. So, like, this is a giant cyclic thing. What, what happens here affects the next thing. So if your shoulders are rounded, chest is slouched, upper back is slouched, head is down, you're respirating at percentages of normal. So now your oxygen to the tissues is less. How are you going to heal from any injury? How are you going to heal from pain? It, it's one thing leads to the next, and it's kind of like which thing first, right? But we have to have these conversations with each other, because awareness of this needs to happen. You know, you go in, people will come to me and say, what supplement should I take? And I'm like, whoa, really? Uh, that's a tough question because how about if we talk about the shoes you're wearing and the, the way you're standing first? Because you can take all the supplements in the world, honey, and it's not going to help you. It's just going to ruin your bank account. So at the end of the day, with the people that I get to work with, we raise awareness. And that's all about that first phase in my process, and that's understand. Mm -hmm. We have to understand all the factors that influence how you feel. Let's get after the stuff that's free, right? Let's get after how you're sitting, how it affects you, how you stand, how you walk. Let's get after how you, you get up out of your chair, Let's get after how much water are you drinking? Like, let's start simple. Mm -hmm. 
Because I can tell you there's a lot of people that are going into surgery that are going in underhydrated, that are going in with poor body mechanics, and they think that this surgery is going to help them. It's unfortunate. Mm. That raises an interesting, interesting question. I th- I'm sure that you see this in your practice all the time. You know, we have people come through the gym, we'll run different programs for nutrition or for weight gain, weight loss, whatever the thing is. And you will see, or I will see people who carry a certain mentality because of an experience that they had. So I was in a car wreck. I, you know, was divorced and, you know, or I had four kids or I lost my job or whatever the thing is. And there's that defining moment. And at that moment, they made up a story about themselves that this is all I'm worth in this moment. You know, this person discarded me or this employer discarded me. So this is all I'm worth. And this is, let me go ahead and lower my expectations. And then, of course, at that point, you get the posture that you referred to earlier you know, so I'm, I'm assuming the next part of your process is going to start dealing with how we undo that, right? So you see the person, they had their experience, they made up the story, they've designed the life around the story that they created about themselves. What, do, what does Dr. Vince now do in the next part of dealing with that to mitigate the pain and get them back on the track to feeling good about themselves and, and looking good? It's interesting you ask because I... I would say that I get referrals from physicians that realize that the surgery is not going to help or the procedure, the injection isn't going to help. They send them to me because of the come to Jesus meeting I have to have. And that's that awareness meeting. That's the sit down and talk frankly about the fact that your woe is me conversation is over. Unless you like how you feel then keep having it. But you're going to the doctor because you don't like the way you feel. So that means it's time to look at your little red wagon and talk about which thing you're dragging around that's defining who you are today. In fact, in July, my book, Damn by Your Diagnosis, comes out. And that's what it's all about. That diagnosis doesn't just have to be given to you by the doctor. That diagnosis could be self-prescribed. And that is your self-worth, your self-esteem, whatever that is. These are all negative, and let's go back to it, energy. This is all vibration. If you wake up in the morning and you say, I feel like shit, guess what? Your day, you're going to feel like shit you got to stop talking to yourself like that. So these are the first conversations we have with somebody. You know, today someone asks me, what's my favorite client? What's the best client? What's the avatar client, like my preeminent client? Well, my life would be super simple if we didn't have to have little red wagon conversations, right? If people were coming to me all really well-adjusted, and realizing that how they think is going to affect how they act. It's real. It's a real deal. And it's just the first piece of it, right? So we have that conversation. Now we're talking about the overcome part. So second phase in the process is overcome. And yes, now we have to start talking about reducing restrictions. So 
people come in with scars, people come in with trigger points that have been laid in because of poor posture. Trigger points happen as a result of either a trauma or a sustained posture that's not so good for you. So we have to get after some things on a manual therapy level to reduce the restrictions. One of the biggest mistakes I see in the American kind of system, I'm going to say system because it's, that's what it is, in physical therapy or, or healthcare, when it comes to the musculoskeletal system, they start stretching or strengthening a patient or a client early. You have to get in and understand if there's any trigger point or tissues that are restricting movement because a trigger point or a scar is a lot like having a knot in a shoestring. Now, you look down at your shoe and you got a knot in it. Are you going to grab a hold of both ends of the shoestring and pull on it? Well, that would be akin to you picking up a dumbbell and start strength training or getting on the floor and stretching. You're going to stretch that knot more tight. You're going to strengthen that knot more strong. So if you don't put in that component of understanding where your restrictions are and get rid of those first and then lay in your stretching or your flexibility or improving range of motion and then strength. So I believe there's, and this is my opinionated self, I believe there's a definite paradigm that should be followed when it comes to getting better. And what I can say after 30 years of doing the paradigm that I'm talking about, it kind of works, you know, and it's, uh, it works well and it works quickly. So I love it on the uh, trigger point uh, conversation. You mentioned the different ways of dealing with that, you know, the, or the, the ideas that we have of, of dealing with that. But I don't think I've ever really heard someone describe exactly what a trigger point is in a muscle or in a joint or, you know what I'm saying? So if for those of us at home who've had, you know, XYZ coach or XYZ trainer, XYZ chiropractor say you have a masseuse, oh, you've got a trigger point here. And we're like, yeah, 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 we've got a trigger point there. You got to get in there and work on it. What's actually happening on a physiological level at that place? Great question. Trigger point is usually, so a muscle, let's just Let's lay out the land here. A muscle is a bundle of fibers, much like uh, a wire, a coaxial wire that has many, many strands of finite wire. So a muscle is a lot like that, all wrapped up in this plastic coating that we call fascia. Mm -hmm. The electricians call it plastic coating. So inside of this fascia, this bundle of little fibers at some point, that muscle is taxed beyond its capabilities. So let's just say you're shoveling a couple thousand pounds of sand and you're not going to stop until that pile is gone. Well, you're going to end up working right through fatigue. Now, your system has a choice. It's either going to completely shut down and you're going to end up as a pile in the pile of sand or it's got to figure out how to permit you to move to finish your task. So what it does is it literally starts 
amping up the amount of electricity going to those fibers in the muscle, creating taut bands that act like struts or like um, a truss system that support the joints. So part of the muscle is still flexible while the other part of the muscle becomes restricted within a certain range. Okay, now your pile of sand is done. Pat yourself on the back, go in the house, have a beer, cool off. Now that muscle is going to assume the length that that couple of fibers inside of the muscle has gotten locked into. So that's your trigger point. The couple fibers that have become taut is the, the, the trigger point, the point in the muscle that's your tautness. But it's going to dictate what that entire muscle does on a level of performance. So trigger points can be nasty when it comes to human movement performance. And it's a place that actually becomes the injured spot if you don't fix that, that doesn't just get better. That gets worse. It keeps getting tighter, mm-hmm. like a ratchet strap. Mm-hmm. So it begins to affect the biomechanics of the joint, the performance of the entire chain. Mm-hmm. So that's your trigger point. That's the importance of the trigger point. And uh, honestly, the American system of physical therapy doesn't permit enough time to get after the trigger points. Because it could take you six, seven, eight sessions to really fetter through trigger points and get, get them gone. Trigger point injections, that's kind of like throwing darts at a target after being spun around 30 times with your <laughs> eyes closed. It's a very imperfect science unless you've had many years of training. A lot of people that are doing trigger point injections got their certifications over a weekend. Mm. So that's a hit or miss. You could end up with a good trigger point specialist that's doing injections. Mm. Same thing with a manual therapist. But trigger points are really, really critical in in general health. Yeah, you, you hear the word all the time, you know, and it doesn't matter where you go. And everybody has a solution, you know, and Absolutely. I think the most common one is that you hear is, hey, you know, jump on the roller or, you know, grab a lacrosse ball or whatever the thing is, you know, or, you know, uh, don't use that smooth roller, get on the rumble roller, you know, and I've always wondered of the validity of those, those tools, you know, and so now that I have an expert sitting across from me, tell me what's going on with those tools. Should they be used? Should they not be used? Well, okay. Let me see if I can do this in a, in a short period of time without standing too high up on a soapbox. Well, uh, let me start with there's, there's a couple neurologic laws that we're functioning within, and one of them is the law of facilitation. So if you're going to rub, so let's say I'm going to come over and I'm going to pat you on the shoulder. Hey, how are you? I'm facilitating or I'm activating the trapezius muscle. It's better to pat somebody in the middle back because typically their mid to low trap is dormant. You don't want to overactivate the upper trap, right? Well, same rule applies when you're using a foam roller that's a misnomer. Rolling 
should really be hunting. So you're hunting for a really acutely tender spot. Historically, that's your trigger point. Now, do you want to murder it with your ball or murder it with your foam roller? No. There's a certain finesse and a certain amount of time you should spend on that trigger point. So what you can do is create dormancy. If you go in and you just mosh the hell out of your quad, let's say, and you find this hot spot and you're like, oh, I can do this, and you're sweating on the ground and you're gritting your teeth and you're swearing under your breath, you're just devastating it. And all of a sudden, oh, that's better. Well, guess what just happened? You just basically sent it over the edge. You got all of the nociceptors or pain receptors to fire. So now you got four hours. You got four free hours to go kick the crap out of yourself. That quad will work just fine. Problem is, when you cool off, that trigger point's coming back, <laughs> and it's coming back with a vengeance. Right. And now your knee is going to start killing you because maybe the trigger point was laying in that IT band or in the TFL. and So it's going to not only go away for a little bit, but it's going to come back really pissed off. So there's a certain amount of pressure to put in a tr trigger point. There's a certain amount of finesse, breathing. Um, you have to learn how to relax into that. And if it's taking you five, 10 minutes to get through it, the rule is seven times. So you go over, you hit that trigger point with your foam roller, you stay on it for mm, seven to 10 seconds, go find a different spot to murder, and then come back up to seven times. If inside the seven times it doesn't get better, you might have to do it another day. But you don't just keep banging the crap out of it because all you're doing is you're saying to your nervous system, uh, make a note, this area sucks. <laughs> and this area should be tighter right. because this Yahoo is going to come back with that foam roller and do it again. Right. So neurologically, you train those tissues then to become tighter. Mm. And I see it a lot. So it shouldn't be a torture test at the end of the day. No, absolutely you should, you should find it, maybe get a little uncomfortable and then move on, come back to it. Yeah, really it's all about this rule. It, what they say is seven times seven days mm. when it comes to trigger point release yourself, SFMR, self myofascial release, SMFR, yes. Um, seven times per session or per bout for seven days. And at the end of seven days, you should be good. Right. It's not going to happen in one session. I thought, that was fantastic. That's, I think, probably the best explanation I've ever heard on that particular topic. So, th so thank you for that. And I know that we had uh, started your process with the understand piece. We got into the overcome piece, and I sidetracked you That's on right. the, the trigger yeah. points. And uh, I know you have a third piece. So take us into the third piece. Pursue. So we start with the end in mind a lot of times during that first evaluation. I always want to know, so what are you going to do with this body if it feels good? Like, let's cast that out into the universe. What are you going to do with it? What does life look like without any pain? 
And unfortunately for a lot of chronic pain sufferers, they've lost their mojo. They don't even know how to answer that. So part of our understand phase is understanding what we're going to do with our amazingness when we achieve it. So the pursue is all about now, okay, we've righted the wrongs. Your posture's good. You understand sparing strategies. You understand uh, regular daily routine of postural hygiene and corrective exercise. You're good, man. You're ready to go, right? Now what we need to do is first we need to say, don't ever stop doing the thing that got you better. Because what's the first thing that we do when the pain is gone? We forget. We forget how friggin' miserable our life was and how motivated we were to get after it and get better. We forget that we couldn't pick our kids up and wash dishes or pick up laundry. or We forget all that stuff. And we really make sure that that person understands that, unfortunately, once you're a back pain sufferer, and this is generalization, once you're a back pain patient, you're always a back pain patient. Because your nervous system learns. And it's not real hard to start playing that record again. Mm -hmm. So if you start to treat yourself poorly and you stop doing all these amazing things that got you better, you're going to end up with a reoccurrence. And that's the real trick, right? So when you're dealing with a client, no matter on what level, whether, whether they're, you know, in office or in gym or, you know, in life in general, you know, have, you stumbled across any processes or any ways of seeing uh, that issue um, dealt with in a manner that gets the most client compliance going forward? Because that's the real trick, right? Like we, we can all help everybody in the world if, if they would just listen, right? If, and that's uh, the biggest complaint, you know. Well, I, I chuckle as you're saying it because there's a really simple solution to that. <laughs> I don't take insurance. <laughs> right. People pay me out of pocket. Right. So it's a really amazing teaching tool. They got to want to be there. They have to want to be there. Right. And the 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 really smart person will realize that if I don't want to spend that kind of money again, I'm going to do these little things that I learned. Like how foolish would it be? Right? I mean there are those people that will go out and buy an amazing Mercedes and roll up the windows and smoke in it. They do that. But that's a conscious action. Like, you know what's going to happen, right? The interior is going to suck. Or you might have a guy that likes to do donuts in that Mercedes and you might run the wheels into the curb. You know what the effect is going to be. So, yeah, we do have those people that will reoccur. The good part is, is that we've established a relationship with those people and they know that we're still the pit crew. Mm -hmm. And if there's a little ding or dang that starts to pop up, it's an easy conversation because mm -hmm. they have a foundation. Right. And it's easy then to, to right the wrong. But I can tell you that after 30 years of doing this and, and being a private pay guy, I don't have a lot of reoccurring people unless mm -hmm. it's catastrophe stuff like traumatic car accidents or, you know, I just recently had a conversation with a person that 
had an unfortunate circumstance where a family mother, a family member passed away spontaneously mm-hmm. and it kind of pulled her off track. That stuff happens in life, right? So if it does occur that way, we don't hold any grudges. We help that person back to where they needed to be. But mm-hmm. ultimately, if it has to do with the person being conscious about their well-being and the pursuit of the rest of their life, we typically don't see repeat offenders. I like the way that you frame that. And I, I think when I look at your, you know, your process, your one, two, three, it sounds like, and I feel like a lot of people avoid this out of either fear of losing a client or, you know, they're in a spot in their business where they have to have money now. Um, but what I'm hearing is that you take a, an, you, you go the extra mile in terms of qualifying that person in the beginning and setting expectations and, you know, kind of laying out how this thing works. And at that point, it's almost like you're offering them a choice. And when I think about that, you know, some people make a choice and some people make a decision, you know, a decision is kind of based on past experience. Well, this guy did this to me in the past. And so I'm either going to let go of that or I'm not right. But choice more or less comes from nothingness. It's like, okay, I'm buying into what this person's telling me. I'm, I'm leaving the red wagon at home. Right. And I'm going to take the plunge with this guy and see, you know, see what happens. You know, is that a kind of a fair assessment? It's an absolutely fair assessment. Um, it's exactly how it works with us. It's a, it's a very intense port of entry. Mm-hmm. We have to decide if we're going to play well in the sandbox together. Um, I'm, I'm not unreasonable. I know that how I speak, how I think isn't going to work for everybody. But for the people that it works for, it works pretty wonderfully. Mm-hmm. And then I have this really crazy concept inside of my business imagine this a medical provider saying to you i guarantee it so let's say we get eight weeks into this sucker and we are really not getting to where we want to go i'll give you your money back why because i don't want anything in my red wagon i don't want to go away from a relationship thinking What could I have done different? Or that was a failure and I got paid. Mm -hmm. I kept that sucker's money. Right. That's a horrible way to exist and I'm not doing it. Like Mm -hmm. money for me comes for doing good work and providing a great service. I don't want to make money based on failures, Mm -hmm. right? And failure to me isn't what it might sound like. It means that for some reason, the universe just didn't align for us at that time. That doesn't mean that someday down the road, we can't get back on it and go after it again. We just come together and decide this isn't working. Right. Like for whatever reason, have I had a lot of those? No, no, because the interview process, the the port of entry is is pretty succinct and concise and we're very informal about it. And we decide if we're going to be partners in this journey together. Like this is an expedition we're doing. We're leaving tomorrow, pack what you need. And when we leave, we're not coming back home for a little while. <laughs> right. And things could get a little rough, but we're together. Let's make this as much fun as we can make it. Mm-hmm. 
that's kind of my attitude when it comes come to it. I love it, man. That's a, I think that's a super valuable lesson, uh, especially just in, in any business, but especially in this business where you're dealing with expectations. Oh, and, yeah. you know, a lot of people have, sometimes you have to manage those expectations. Sometimes they're realistic. Sometimes they're not. And, you know, I think a lot of times uh, what I find in the health and wellness industry is let me just get your money as quickly as I possibly can. And, you know, hopefully everything, you know, comes out in the wash on the on the back end. And I feel like that does a disservice for the industry as a whole. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the people that I get to meet, unfortunately, have been through the ringer. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody comes in that has been in the insurance world and they're like, well, it wasn't paid for. It was paid for by insurance. But wait a second. Whoa, you pay a premium, right? Mm-hmm. And you pay a copay, right? Mm-hmm. And doesn't it cost you something to go to the PT session or the doctor? I mean, this is time. That's Since right. when is time free? Right. So the people that are coming in have spent a fair amount of money. Yes. And now I'm going to say to them, this is an out of pocket expense. Mm-hmm. Like you just got done warming up. Now it's time to play the game because all the things you just went through were free in your mind, right? What do you get for free? Nothing. And if you didn't put skin in the game, what was your impetus to get better? Right. I mean, how many days in a row did you get up and be like, oh, I'm just going to do what I did yesterday. But if today is going to cost you $1,000, you're not saying that to yourself. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. I love that, man. I love the way that you frame that. I feel like that's such a valuable, valuable lesson in all businesses, but especially dealing with people, you know, getting that buy-in, having someone choose in, I think is absolutely crucial. And people do follow their investments. You know, if, uh, you know, like you said, you get nothing for free or very little for free. And, um, you know, yeah, I'm not really sure I'd want to go to a discount therapist of any sort, of any kind, right? So following your money, I think, is key. And I, I feel like the, the flip side of that in, in our industry is a lot of times people will sell themselves short because they got bills to pay or whatever the thing is. And they'll take money knowing full well that the money that they collected isn't enough to provide the service that they need to provide to get the client to the next level. And I feel like that also does the same thing. It just creates a disservice because it creates a relationship that was not equitable. And, you know, you were talking about results earlier and one of my favorite quotes from my mentor popped in my head. He says, you know, there's no greater way to gauge a man than by results, often harsh, but always fair. And, uh, you know, when you talk That's about true. that equity piece and issuing a guarantee, you know, you've, Absolutely. you've got not only do they have skin in the game, but you have skin in the game. And I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, my gosh, I'm going to work as hard at this as that person is going to work. at. That's right. That's right. But the celebration at the end is so cool. Right. I mean, you can go onto my website and see some of the testimony, video testimonials. Mm-hmm. And when you see some of these people swinging their kids for the first time and the child is 13 years old, you talk about a celebration. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing thing. And because of that guarantee and because of the amount that I put into every person, I get to celebrate with them. Mm-hmm. This wasn't just me punching a clock going to work. This was me on that journey and we made it. Right. 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 How cool is that? That's very cool. And the feeling is amazing. You know, I've I've had it on a smaller scale in the gym, I'm sure. 
And so at this point in your career, you know, what is it that success looks like to you? You know, when you look back on all the work that you've done, do you have a definition for that or do you not? I do. It may not sound so successful to a lot, but uh, my goal ultimately is to become a speaker, to become someone that can educate masses, Mm -hmm. more people at one time than just one at a time. My goal is to, with the book as a platform, get in and do some speaking engagements, mm-hmm. help raise awareness and, and get eyes open when it comes to how a person looks at healthcare, how to take care of themselves, how to dig themselves out of a hole, a painful hole. Um, success for me is, yeah, I suppose money can come into it, but it's just I need to be able to pay my bills. You know, I'm beyond the whole getting after making millions. If it happens, super. But I I oftentimes talk about doing a donation-based business. I would love to do a test, an experiment, where I open a clinic that has a little box on the door, and you provide service, treatment, care, whatever you call it, And when the person leaves, they put into that little box whatever they felt the value of that care was. Mm -hmm. I feel like if we could base a system more on that Mm -hmm. sort of metric, imagine the care system we would have because the care provider then would be kind of feet in the fire, right? Sure. So I don't know. I always look back at Robin Williams' Uh, movie with the what was the name of it he wore a a red nose in his clinics and it was all about laughter oh patch adams patch adams yeah i remember that so i look at the profound effects that those care providers had on their patients Mm -hmm. and it was all about the de-accentuation of money and all of these material things that we're so attuned to so one day if you if you see the donation only business out there in scottsdale or wherever <laughs> you know that i'm considered successful i love it man we should definitely have a, a donation only system for paying taxes i believe oh right? wow <laughs> great what, what value that's a great are you getting topic right? for today i know it? right <laughs> so great for sure so that's uh, I love I love the, I love your take on that. I would love to see uh, a clinic like that in practice, just uh-huh. to see if it was viable. You know, to see if people would actually value it. Because I feel like we live in such a magic pill society that I'm not sure we've educated people enough to see the monetary value in what it is that they pursue with their healthcare. Because at the end of the day the expenses are always obfuscated by insurance in most cases, or, you know, some sort of, I guess you'd say lower tier marketing campaign to get someone through your front door in the first place, sort of a thing. Be interesting to see if that experiment actually worked. But, um, so at this point in your career, you know, having defined or having some semblance of what success looks like, you've talked about the book. Um, I'm going to get you to tell us a little bit about your business and, and, and your ideal client just a moment, but, what does wellness uh, look like for you? What does that encompass? What do you think of when you hear that word? That's it. So I have an awesome little blog about wellness. My blog, the, 
it talks about wellness actually being one foot in the door of the hospital. Mm. One foot in the door of the hospital. So I believe wellness is one step above sick. Oh, okay. Now let's use another word, fitness. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking about being a couple miles away from the front door of the hospital. Mm-hmm. See, wellness is is born, by the way, in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, at University of Stevens Point. I don't know if anybody knew that, but that's the birthplace of the word wellness. I had no idea. And back then, in the late 60s, I believe, it meant a whole different thing, and it just meant to be aware of keeping yourself healthy, Mm. right? Not anymore, Wellness is being used as a catch term to grab communities Mm -hmm. in a wellness system that's run by the medical system so that they're a captive audience. Mm. So it's been hijacked. So it's a little bit hijacked. So now think of it as a corral Mm. and you're driving through, oh, what state? Let's pick Texas. You're driving on the interstate and you look to the left and you see all these amazing black cows in this corral. What's the big building attached to the corral? It's the meatpacking plant. Yeah, slaughterhouse. The slaughterhouse. That's how I look at wellness. Mm. It's kind of a morbid way of looking at it, but that's what what it is. Mm. Let's talk about fitness. And that's what my blog is all about is Hey, wake up, wake up. You need to become fit. And that's why I love the way you were dressed with your Spartan shirt. You look super fit. And like getting into it, that's my avatar for my client, right? Like the people that heal fastest are fit. They're not people that walk 30 minutes a day. You know, they do all of the, they check the boxes, Oh, I exercised today. Well, what did you do? Well, I walked around the block once with my with my dog. Okay. And I drank three glasses of water. You know, all of the things that they say keeps you well. Well, really, if you looked at it, that's not really fit. Right. Like, what happens if something really came down in our country and you were required to put a backpack that weighed 40% of your body weight on your back, your car is no longer functioning and you have to run. How far are you going to get? Your kids. Now your kids are with you. You have to carry their stuff and you have to maybe drag them with you. How far are you going to get? That's fit. So when people talk about wellness, I kind of go, because man, let's not have that conversation. Like that's just, you're functioning right above sick. Mm, I see. I see. Gotcha. So fitness then would probably be in the better term in, in, in your vocabulary. So if, when I'm thinking of fitness, I think of the sort of traditional way of, of seeing the word, meaning you have a task, you are either fit for the task or not, whether it's reading a book or running with 40% of your body weight on your back, you, you can or you cannot do that. It's like a measure of capacity for a given task. And then yes. in the modern world, 
we are so pampered. I mean, you know, if we want, if you and I wanted to right now, <laughs> exactly. If you and I wanted to right now, we could, you know, pop open the phone and food would be delivered. Absolutely. You know, and anything we want can be delivered. We would never even have to leave the couch, right? It's right. almost like that movie. Uh, forget the the name of the movie, but, um, you know, where human beings are basically been reduced to beings where they just are blobs of fat in floating Wally. chairs. Wally. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, that's they what I think that of all the time. That's what I think of when I see, you know, uh, morbidly obese people like cruising on a little Absolutely. scooter, you know, at, where at we're the grocery headed, store, man. right? So bone density is gone. Yeah. It's, you fall out of your hover chair <laughs> and you can't get up because you got no bones. <laughs> right. Right. You're just a blob. Yeah. Guess where we're headed as a society. Oh, this is a whole nother conversation that we could go after. Yeah, we're going to have to have the do hard things conversation because that's a huge mantra for me and, and some of the people in my circle. So we'll definitely have to do that. Oh, awesome. Awesome, man. Well, so tell me a little bit about what you got going on uh, over at your spot in, in Scottsdale and how people can get in touch with you or reach out to you if they want to sure. come meet you and see what you have to offer. Yeah, so my business is very much either virtual, online. So I'm very much an evaluator. So I'm a problem solver. All I need is video and photos. And I have a really cool platform that helps a person gather the data that I need to study. So I can do that online. Mm -hmm. If you're lucky enough to be close by, I have an office in Scottsdale where I can do one-on-one -on -one visits with people I still tend to be the guy that does the evaluation, the strategic planning, finding the linchpin. And I like to work with other professionals in town to do the manual therapy or the corrective exercise. I believe that through the years, I've become expert at specific things because I focus on them, right? And there's plenty of amazing professionals out there in the fitness world and in the manual therapy world that can take the notes and perform the service. I have found that in the past, the only reason why a personal trainer or a physical therapist or a massage therapist will fail is because they really didn't do a good job of understanding what the root cause was. So I'm kind of the guy that discovers that and then creates the path, a tightness, weakness profile, if you will. And once you have that, you can pretty well go anywhere to get the rest of your answers or get the work done. Mm -hmm. And then I tend to be the checkpoint. So I'm the guy that manages the care. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So um, do you have uh, a spot online you prefer people to visit uh, I do. in order to get yeah. in contact? And yeah. what would that be? So it's thelivingpainfreemethod.com, www.thelivingpainfreemethod.com. You can uh, go onto that website, and I actually have a, a free discovery call. It's a Zoom link that I ask everybody that might want to know about me or, or about what I do. Um, they go to that, they schedule it, and we have a 15-minute chat about where they're at and, and what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and do I fit in the sandbox with them, basically. Beautiful, beautiful. Man, I really appreciate you sharing your story and a lot about your experience today. It's been 
hugely enlightening for me. And I would definitely like to have that do hard things conversation. We'll have to, oh, we'll have yeah. to do another, another uh, podcast together oh, at, at some yeah. point. And uh, I'd love to pick your brain a little bit more. So thank you for that. Thank you for all your time and expertise today. And with that said, guys, on behalf of Dr. Vince and myself, we'll see you in the next episode. Take care. That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing. And by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or pick me up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.